9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another of our special Ask the Blob episodes when we talk to people from within the blob, uh, which is to say the national security and foreign policy community, and enable you who are our members to pose questions directly to them. Well, almost directly, you will go to the little Q&A box at the bottom uh, of this if you're participating in the webinar and you will type in a question and I will relay it to our guest. Our guest is extremely familiar to all of you because she is one of our founding regulars around here. Uh, it's Rosa Brooks. And uh, as all of you who follow Deep State Radio know, Rosa has a great new book, brilliantly reviewed and for good reason, called Tangled Up in Blue, which tells uh, the story of Rosa's time as um, an officer on the uh, Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department and uh, uh, manages with great deftness to weave together um, a, a really fascinating uh, account of her time on the force, which typically for Rosa is uh, also from time to time very funny. Uh, and uh, and weave that together with some big questions about policing, which of course is a big issue for the United States right now. Hi, Rosa, and congratulations again on this book. Thank you, David. Are you beginning to relax a little bit, given that the reaction has been really good? Yeah, I'm beginning to relax. I, you know, when the book comes out, as you know, you're sort of waiting for various shoes to drop, and and you don't know whether the reviewers are going to trash it or praise it. Um, so once you get a good review or two, you go, that's that boat. <laughs> well, in this, in this particular case, I don't think there was really any chance, um, but that you would get um, a great response because it's truly a great book. And as somebody who's written a lot of books, I have to say, I had the sort of the ideal reaction to it, which is I couldn't put it down. I couldn't stop reading it. And every couple of pages, there was a phrase that was so well turned that it depressed me greatly that I was unable to write that way. Um, that's good, I guess. <laughs> no, no, that's no, no. It's 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 a it's a very good book. So I'll ask you a couple of questions about the book. Mm -hmm. um, but as we go with these things, I, I encourage the folks who are uh, listening, participating in the, the webinar portion of this thing to pose questions in the Q&A and I will relate them to you, but this is a chance to hear from Rosa um, about the book or anything else uh, that, you, that you're interested in. I, I, hardly know, I, I hardly know where to begin. One of the things that struck me, because I've known you for many years about the book, is that there is this kind of memoir quality to it, not just your time on the force, but sort of Rosa growing up, Rosa and her mom, Rosa and her dad, Rosa and her brother, Rosa at school, Rosa and the kids down the street, um, which was just, you know, fast, fascinating for me. But when you put it all together, it actually does 
lead you to a place where, you know, a uh, tenured Georgetown law professor with high um, government positions and, 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 a, and a great deal of visibility as a commentator also becomes a cop and goes through school. It, it's, it's, it, 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 it kind of makes sense. Um, in retrospect, I mean, your family seemed to be a little bit, uh, have a hard time adjusting to it. Uh, in retrospect, do they think it now makes sense? Yeah, I think they came around. Um, it took a while, but they came around in the end. Your motivation to do this, uh, as, as described in the book, starts out to be uh, interest combined with, I don't know, searching for a little bit of excitement or change of pace in your life and ends up evolving into you know, a desire to write about something that's a big issue in the United States. At, at, at what point did the penny drop for you and you said, I, I need to write about this? At what point was it that you said, there's, there's something important here that I can add to the debate? You know, um, I'm gonna give you a, a really unsatisfying answer, which is that I first said I would write a book because my agent was putting a lot of pressure on me. <laughs> and she was saying, you've got to write about this. And I kept saying, oh, you know, I don't really know what I'd say. So, um, and then she was saying, you know, you got to write about this before everybody forgets about your previous book, because then you won't be able to, get a, to just strike while the iron is hot. And, and so I somewhat ambivalently came up with a book proposal, um, which was then accepted by, by Penguin, my publisher. And then I was stuck. And then I, then I was like, oh shit, now I have to write a book for real. And I did did not know what I was going to write. And I really struggled. Um, and, and I think I say this somewhere in the book for a while, I kind of thought, well, you know, I will write the scholarly masterwork on everything that is wrong with policing and how to fix it. And, um, you know, I kind of made a few vague gestures in that direction. Um, but the combination of my um, lack of uh, aptitude for things that require lots and lots of research um, with, uh, so realizing, I don't think I add anything all that new. There, you know, there have been some terrific books about policing and the criminal justice system. Some of them written by my colleagues at Georgetown, um, um, like my colleague Paul Butler's book *Chokehold: Policing Black Men*. Um, uh, and I thought I don't really think I have anything particularly new or interesting to say on that front, but. I began to realize, and it, it, it took a while to evolve. It was actually a really hard book to write in some ways to sort of realize that the one thing I, I thought maybe I could add that was relatively unique was, was just stories of what this is like day to day from the perspective of somebody who had a foot in the policing world, but also obviously a foot, maybe a foot and a half if I had two and a half feet um, in you know the world of liberal elites, as we call them, you know, policy types, academics, and so on. And so that's, in the end, is what I did. Yeah, I, I think you you downplay uh, the, the, the what is unique in this contribution, you know, sort of in a way that's a little unfair on yourself. Because, you know, we're at a moment in this debate where it is incredibly fraught. We've come out of a year where there was, you know, a major movement around this idea of defunding the police, uh, a national debate around whether the police departments were uh, homes to institutional racism, case after case, uh, 
of 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 abuse by the police. And yet at the same time, you know, there is this kind of deep desire and need to have uh, folks, you know, sort of on the front lines assisting with providing law and order. In other words, the debates become extremely fraught, but it's lost its humanity. You know, it's we've lost yeah. a kind of a, a grasp of who these people really are and what the nature of of the life of of, of policing really is. And, yeah. and you capture the good and the bad of it. It's it's incredibly a human story. I really felt like I was sort of going out on these different um, uh, shifts with you and, you know, that I was stuck in the bathroom with you trying to figure out how to oh God, no. pee in 30 pounds of police gear, which, which I, I found. The only thing that would have been worse than being stuck in the bathroom with 30 pounds of police gear would have been stuck in the bathroom with 30 pounds of police gear and you, David. <laughs> not, yeah, not no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I th thank you. But th that's the advantage of a book is, you know, you, you, you have... <laughs> You know, this it, there is a great eye for the detail um, of what's serious and 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 absurd in all, in in all of this, and uh, you know, it it helps put some perspective on it because you know, on the on the one hand, when you get to issues that are incredibly inflammatory, like institutional racism, you saw a lot of that. I mean, it was it was there. I mean, the 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 attitudes of the cops that you worked with towards people in the with the seven D, the district you worked in, it's pretty nasty. Sometimes. Yeah, and it depended on the on the officer, obviously. But but no, I I think um, as you know, I've worked earlier in my career in places where there are just horrific atrocities unfolding you know, places like um, Kosovo and Sierra Leone during Civil War and um, Northern Uganda and Lord's Resistance Army atrocities and and have also studied societies where things go really, really, really wrong, you know. Um, and one of the key things that can pave the way for real atrocities is, is dehumanization. You know, the, the sort of division into us, us's versus them's and each group dehumanizes the other. And, and I do think that the way we talk about policing and the way we talk about crime in this country, um, there's a lot of dehumanizing that goes on on both sides, you know, that night. And I do quote some officers um, who I worked with and some were wonderful, some were absolutely wonderful some were terrible and some were sort of half wonderful and half terrible. But, you know, I quote some officers saying things like, you know, these people are fucking animals. Um, um, on the other hand, you know, there are people who will say, you know, racist pig when they see a police officer go by. And, and, and both of those, you know, whenever you get groups that are coming up with language that dehumanizes the other, it's a danger. It's a dangerous situation, you know. And, and those things can kind of feed off each other. Well, they're dehumanizing me, so I'll dehumanize them some more. Um, and, and just in general, I mean, I think we live in a society where everybody loves these sort of binary opposites, um, and there's not a huge amount of room for nuance, um, you know. So depending on where you start, you're either saying, "Oh, the police are underappreciated, self-sacrificing heroes. I'm not going to hear a word against them." Back the blue. 
or you're saying the police are a bunch of brutal racist thugs and I won't hear a word in their favor. You know, it's absolutely outrageous that people support police in any way. We need to abolish them. And, you know, whenever I hear that kind of binary opposition, I always think, okay, um, neither of those can be quite right. You know, there, there's gotta be a kernel of truth in both of them and there's gotta be a whole lot of other stuff tangled up together in the middle. And that, that's what I set out to find. Yeah, and you, br br I think brilliantly, you do not explain that through uh, exposition, you show it. And, you know, with some of these cops, including some of the cops who use kind of brutal language um, about the people, you also in the, you know, the next breath say, you know, he knew everything about that guy standing on the corner. He remembered everything about it. Or we went in and there was this tough situation and... He knew that girl. He knew what her problem was. And 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 so, you know, you have these cops mm -hmm. who are actually trying to do good, who filed away a lot of data about all these people and 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 were actually, you know, part of the part of the community in a in the most constructive way. Same people. I mean, is that is that, is that your sense? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean, and, and all of us are complicated, right? We're all individuals who we have sides that we're proud of and sides that we're less proud of. And, um, you know, one of the things that I think really became super clear to me doing this is the degree to which we, we as a society have shoved onto police a wide range of radically different roles. Um, you know, we want them to be protectors and keep the right wing hordes away from the capital and keep the, you know, serial killers away from us. We want them to be uh, warriors who can, you know, who can fight off violent criminals or insurrectionists if they need to. We want them to be mediators and medics and social workers and take sick people to the hospital and counsel kids who are truants and, you know, help find shelter for people who are homeless and mediate a dispute between, you know, two adult siblings who are having a, a fight that's about to devolve into a fist fight. And those varying roles, uh, any one of them is pretty hard to do well. And if you're asking somebody to do all of them in the same, same space of the same patrol shift, it's basically impossible. And so part of what you'd see in people was that they would kind of ricochet from situation to situation and they'd be radically different situations and they'd bring out really different sides of the same officer often. And, and that's part of what many people love about policing. You know, if you're an adrenaline junkie or you're an ADHD-ish type and you like variety and you like change, the great thing about policing is that you absolutely never know what's gonna happen next. And it could be, you know, it could be a big nothing, it could be a firefight and you don't know. And there are a lot of people who love that, you know, who sort of thrive on that sense of every day is different. I never go to work thinking uh, same old, same old. I go to work knowing that every single day is going to be different. But in turn, you know, that that just means, I think, you know, we've piled so much on cops that they're the kind of system is buckling in various ways, some of which have to do with race and socioeconomic issues, but some, and, and some of which don't, but, but, but yeah, I mean, one of the things that was really striking to me was that I would be partnered with somebody who would go in the space of an hour from doing something incredibly compassionate, um, you know, and self-sacrificing and, and, and sensitive and thoughtful. And then the next minute they'd be saying, oh, fucking animals about the, you know, and you'd kind of go, wait, what? Um, are you the same person? 
Um, and they were, and that's what people are like, you know, they're, they're, they're all mixed up. Well, yeah, I think, you know, another thing that comes through from the beginning to the end of the book, um, but just building on what you were just saying is cops are asked to do, they're asked to sort of be the shock absorbers in society. Almost everything that goes wrong, the first person that gets called is, yeah. is, a, is a cop. And, you know, you have a section where you talk about um, uh, mental health. I mean, in fact, yeah. I don't remember the exact term, but it was something like, don't, no, there's nobody crazy in DC. They call them mental health, me consumers. Mental health consumers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and you give some examples of that. But, we, we you know, we have a hugely defective mental health care system in yeah. the United States. And we have criminalized mental health. And so yeah. the front line of defense are people who are, you know, at personal risk all day long and have training that's very heavily oriented towards law enforcement and violence and not towards care for mental health. When you look back at it, one of the questions, the first questions that's come up here has to do with the training. And mm -hmm. I know that at the end of all of this, you created a program um, uh, with at Georgetown to help preparing uh, cops and uh, folks for next generation policing issues. When you look at the training and you you spent what 50 weeks of training, is there a gap? Is there is is you know is it adequate? Is there a way to yeah. train a cop to do the job? So it depends what the job is, right? I mean that's part of the problem is I, I think as a society we don't know what we want police to do. Um, and and at the moment as I said we're asking them to do a whole lot of contradictory things. Um, uh, ideally, you know, you want to know what you want them to do and then you train to those tasks. But at the moment, there's a mismatch. We train cops to sort of law enforcement tasks and then we ask them to do a whole bunch of things that they are really poorly equipped to do. I'd love to talk about training, but actually want to kind of go back to another piece of, of what you were saying first, David. One of the things that was really sort of borne in on me during this experience um, was the degree to which a lot of the things that critics of policing rightly decry are things that aren't created by the police and can't be changed by the police. Um, that they are, you know, for instance, if cops arrest way too many people for ridiculously trivial offenses in ways that end up really harming communities rather than helping people, we have a tendency to go, you know, oh, bad cops. But they didn't, you know, the reason they're arresting people for trivial offenses is because we voted for a bunch of people who passed legislation criminalizing a whole bunch of trivial offenses and then told the cops to go enforce those laws. Um, and the same is true for all kinds of stuff. You know, why do cops make traffic stops? Why do we have armed people? Why do we need armed uniformed people enforcing civil traffic regulations? We don't send armed people to your house if you miss an IRS filing deadline. You know, we, we you get a nasty letter in the mail. That's all that happens. But we've decided that we need armed people to get you out of your car or whatever if you make a right turn on red, where there's a sign that says no right on red. But cops don't decide on their own, hey, let's do that. You know, those are things that we put on them and then we don't like the results. I do think that it was very, very obvious to me that there are lots of things that cops can change and should change. You know, and cops can change their training, cops can change recruiting, cops can change internal department regulations and, you know, uh, evaluation procedures and so on. But fundamentally, you know, they're enforcing laws that they didn't make in a social context, they can't do a heck of a lot to change. And if we want to address those deeper issues, all those systemic issues, 
you know, we kind of need to look in the mirror and go, okay, we're the people who voted for the people who are now the judges, the district attorneys, the, the, the state legislators, the city council, and the cops can't change that by themselves. The, the other thing that, that really kind of struck me and that comes out of some of what we were saying earlier about the, the many roles cops play in the inadequate mental health system, um, I do think that there's actually a way in through that to a much more constructive discussion about reimagining public safety than the kind of defund the police rhetoric. I, you know, if you say defund the police to a cop, um, you know, so 7D Washington DC cop, they're going to be, they're going to look at you and they're going to say, are you out of your mind? Have you seen our station? You know, have you seen my car? Have you seen my equipment? They're crappy. You know, we don't have enough resources to do the things that you're asking me to do. And now you're going to take away resources. You know, I don't like you go away. Right. On the other hand, if you say to the same cop, tell me about the things that you do that you don't really think you ought to be doing that you think some other entity, some other agency should be doing. And tell me all the things that you do that feel hopeless to you because there aren't the kinds of social services that we would want to support you. And they'll start saying things like, I hate the fact that I can take a mentally ill person who's walking around the street raving and waving a broken bottle and I can take them to the emergency psychiatric clinic and the next day they're gonna be right back on that same street you know, raving and walking around with a broken bottle because we don't have anywhere to put them. And I really wish there was a better mental health care system that could take care of them, et cetera. I think once you get to that conversation, you actually start seeing a huge amount of common ground between police officers and critics of policing, where it becomes possible to say, you know, not let's slash the budget, but let's work together to think about what, what does public safety mean to this community? You know, what should it look like? What, what tasks do we want people to do? Who is currently doing them? Are they the right people to do them? If they're not the right people, who would be the right people? Do those right people exist right now or do they not exist? And if they don't exist, how long is it gonna to take to create them? What do we need to do? What, what investments do we need to make? What training programs do we need to create to have services that are the way we want them? And that's a you know 10 year plan, not a tomorrow we abolish the police plan. And I, and I do think if you can get to that discussion, you can get to a, a much, much better place than we usually end up. You know, usually we just end up with people shouting at each other. Um, but I think, I think it is possible to have a better discussion. Yeah. And, and you, you touch upon a lot of ground there because you've got to rewrite the laws. You've got to take guns out of the hands of other people. If you want to discuss taking them out of the hands of cops, you've got to yeah. train somebody to do the job that you know, you don't want the cops to do. And, and that's yeah. a, that's a big thing. By the way, I was deeply shocked. Talk about the trivial laws that have to be enforced. The, the fact that it's against the law and you could end up with 10 days in jail for having a, a dog leash that's longer than four feet. I realize I'm, yeah, no, that I'm, I'm at big risk. Watch it. Yeah. Also the five eels. I believe there was a limit on the number of eels. Fail, that, failure to check your eel trap. Yeah. I, I have a feeling that nobody's been charged with that for, you know, maybe 50 years or so, but um, still on the books. It, it you know, and, and the, you know, the, this is the kind of thing this book is full. We got four or five questions that I would like to get to some rather long. Um, and we've got about 15 minutes. So I just, I'm going to let you pace yourself through these, knowing that there are four or five here. Uh, one begins is is about or, or references uh, actually your mom who shows up a lot in the book. But let me let me let me read it to you. It's a it's a bit long. 
Barbara Ehrenreich, your mother, was the commencement speaker at my graduation from one of the seven sister colleges and got a big laugh line when the, with the rhetorical quip, have you ever envied a penis? Someone else in the audience that May was the future mayor of Minneapolis, Betsy Hodges. Last spring, after Minneapolis voted to disband its police force, Mayor Hodges published an op-ed in the New York Times. I would like to get your reaction to what she wrote. Perhaps you remember it and have a general response. Just in case, I've included a key quote um, below. Uh, she also notes she's brought her mother to this webinar, so circle of life. But the quote she- my mother with me everywhere, as you can yeah. see. Well, that's very, you're, you're a very sensitive woman. But uh, the, the, the quoted line is, whether we know it or not, white liberal people in blue cities implicitly ask police officers to politely stand guard in predominantly white areas of town where the downside of bad policing is usually inconvenient and to aggressively patrol the parts of town where people of color live, where the consequences of bad policing are fear, violent abuse, mass incarceration, and far too often death. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think that low-income communities of color are indeed over-policed. I, I also think that this is not a malevolent conspiracy to further destroy communities of color. I think it's I think it's more complicated than that because I think that over-policing is driven by demand as well as supply. Um, and you know, one of the things that was very striking to me. Policing was uh, people call 911 for all kinds of wacky reasons, uh, including reasons they should just never be calling. And you know, cops go where they're told. They don't. They don't choose their assignments. Um, again, this goes back to the sort of they enforce laws they didn't create. And if people are calling you because they're mad because their neighbor was smoking marijuana and the stairway smells, um, you know, or they're mad because they're a bunch of boys making too much noise on the corner. Um, the police will go. It's not at all clear that the police should go, but we usually don't leave it to the police to make those decisions. And in fact, we get very upset when police don't respond to a 911 call and maybe the boys on the corner, you know, maybe somebody stabbed somebody and they were like, why didn't the police show up? You know, and, and, and that demand driven piece of over-policing is, is part of it that we have so, we have so badly defunded other social services that in many low-income communities, the only place people think they do have to turn is the police. And you get this sort of vicious circle where, you know, people don't have any turn, so they turn to the police for all sorts of things that the police shouldn't be doing. Police are trained to enforce the law. They're not trained to do all these other things. So they get, so police contacts are more likely to end badly sometimes um, because they're the wrong people to be there in the first place, but we don't have anybody else. And, and, and everybody ends up suffering for it. Um, you know, I think the other piece of this and related to this, um, though, is crime is real. It's not a right wing fantasy. You know, violent crime is not a right wing fantasy dreamed up to justify over policing and mass incarceration. Um, and you really see that as well, you know, that that people call the police for trivial things that they shouldn't be calling the police for. And they in a better world, they wouldn't because there would be other services that would help them out. But they also call the police when somebody's been stabbed or raped or shot, you know, and horrific child abuse, horrifically awful things do happen. And it's very easy talking about white liberals, you know, it's very easy if you're a white liberal living in a safe, affluent neighborhood to say, why do we have all these police? We don't need all these police. 
Um, but when you look at polling from people who actually are living in low income neighborhoods with a lot of crime, they're not typically saying we want fewer police. They're usually saying we want better police. We want different police. We want, we want policing that is more responsive, more respectful, and we want other social services too. But we're not actually saying get rid of the police because we, there, there are times we actually really do need them. And we're, you know, that the poor are as entitled as the rich to be able to call 911 in an emergency and say, get here now and help me. There's another question here, says, any thoughts on the reforms breaking now on oversight of police, uh, outside of police departments, either at the DA levels or independent police commissions? There, you know, there are a hundred ideas out there now. And the administration has said they're going to present some ideas on all of this. What would you like to see the focus on? Well, I think part of the focus should be on internal things, things internal to police departments. Uh, I think police training should be much less militaristic. I think police training should include much more emphasis on communication and de-escalation skills, uh, uh, how to back away, how to slow things down, how to get time, space, and distance so that people aren't reacting out of panic, um, as well as more, more content in the, in the curriculum on uh, what do we know about what causes crime? Very little, as a matter of fact. Um, you know, what is the role of police in a democratic society? How should we grapple with the legacy of racism, uh, which is still very present in our society? What do we do about that? You know, how, do police have a role in changing that? What is it? That those, those are conversations that should be happening in police training. We should change the way we recruit. Um, right now, just to cite one example, of problems in police recruiting. Women make up less than 13% of all law enforcement officers nationwide. That percentage is even lower than women in the military at this point, which is more like 16, 17%. Um, there's a ton of evidence that women, for whatever reason, police differently and better than men, more effectively, less excessive force, et cetera. If we wanted to change policing, one quick way to do it would be to get a whole lot more women as police officers. Uh, and that's something that would take, take some rethinking how recruiting is done. And there are all sorts of other things that are wrong with recruiting too, but I won't, I won't go into them right now. Um, so, there, so there are lots of things that police departments can and should do on their own. But then I, I think the other issue really is focusing on the fact that, as I said, police enforce laws they didn't create. Um, and I think that we should be, every city, every state should be doing a serious scrub of its criminal law. We've seen a steady trend towards over-criminalization, criminalizing things that were civil law violations and taking criminal misdemeanors and turning them into felonies over time, which, which in turn means that we're locking up a whole lot more people for, plus we have legislation that creates longer sentences. We, we need a lot more oversight of prosecutors as well, because often prosecutorial decisions can lead to pretty horrifically bad outcomes. You know, and, and I think that we, we do need to really look very hard at the architecture that shapes policing, not just at policing itself. And there, there are a lot more pieces of that. We should also get rid of qualified immunity, for instance. Um, you know, lot, lots more pieces of it, but those, that's where I guess I will just start. Um, okay. Uh, again, at the time limit and, and more questions popping up, I'll just fire them away. Uh, maybe we can keep the answers to a minute or two because there are a few more questions here. Uh, New York City's uh, Citizen Crime Commission recently issued a framework shifting police forces to police 
services. It's more than semantics, restructuring, retasking, training, recruiting. If you're familiar with this, do you think this would fit DC as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that kind of effort is, is really important, you know, reconceptualizing it from law enforcement to public safety uh, and thinking about what that means in a more holistic way. I, I do think that those efforts are incredibly important. I think that there is a danger that in many places they will become just semantics. You know, you slap a new label on the cars, but nothing really changed. And I worry about that. I mean, same, same concern about places like Minneapolis where they say, oh, we're gonna get rid of the police nothing much has actually changed um, since, since then. You know, that, that the, the danger sometimes of reform efforts that, that are too far reaching too soon is that they just fall apart and then people become even more cynical because they say, see, reform can't work. I think it can work, uh, it's just really hard. Um, yeah, it's just as even as I listen to you and having read the book, you know, it's, it, it strikes me in some respects that the focus on policing is in and of itself a problem because essentially what you're saying is there are all sorts of dysfunction and we have these people who are assigned to dysfunction. Some of it's economic, some of it's social, some of it's racism, some of it's failures in our healthcare system, yeah. some of it's failures in our criminal justice system and all of it gets dumped on this small group of people who are asked to do all of those jobs, not trained to do all of those jobs yeah. Uh, and often trained in a way that skews their response in a way that's inappropriate for doing those jobs. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I think that it's always easier to have a visible target to complain about. And, you know, when we're, when we're worried about the impact of systemic racism, we often point to policing. And specifically, we point to police. Um, and think, well, if only we could sort of abolish the police, our problems would somehow go away. And, and I think when you see the police as kind of the tip of the iceberg and, and themselves shaped and responding to these, uh, this sort of regulatory environment, legal environment, institutional environment that is not created by them, but is created by, by others, created by legislators, created by prosecutors, created by judges, created by all of us, um, I think, the, the focus really changes from, you know, we hate you police to, boy, um, we've got all kinds of really complicated problems. Policing is, is a symptom of deep structural injustices in American society, um, but it's not, for the most part, the cause of those injustices. It's, it's a product of those injustices. So another question, I teach statistical analysis and research methods to criminal justice undergrads and grad students, but I was trained as political science and I know very little to nothing about the jobs that criminal justice majors take. I'm wondering if you have any suggestions about things that cops really need to know that I should be including in my classes. How yeah. can my teaching them about statistics actually help them? So um, a lot of criminal justice majors do become cops. They do go into law enforcement very frequently or law enforcement related careers. Um, and I think that teaching them to think about how do you analyze things like, uh, is policing effective in this community? You know, that is, that is the conceptual, that contextualizing, it's not just a matter of statistics, it's partly a matter of, do we have any idea what good policing is? What is good policing? Um, 
Um, and then can we measure it? How would we measure it? What are, you know, what are the garbage in garbage out problems of maybe we're measuring the wrong thing, you know, changes in the crime rate, changes in the arrest rate, changes in the number of civilian complaints. They all sound like good things to measure, but when you actually start kind of poking at what they are, you realize, oh, actually they, that they might not tell us what we think they tell us. Pushing them to kind of go behind the numbers to the decisions about what to measure that make an enormous difference. Also training them to think about probability and risk. I mean, you know, one of the things the book talks about is the way in which the constant emphasis in police training on, you know, anybody could kill you at any time. Policing is an incredibly dangerous job, often leads officers to, to really overestimate the degree of danger they are in on the job. You know, it is a dangerous job relative to most others, but it's not nearly as dangerous as cops think. And I, I often ask cops, you know, tell me how many cops you think are killed in the US each year by, you know, in, in feloniously killed, as the FBI puts it. And they always give these wild overestimates. In fact, typically it's it's 50 or under each year. Um, and cops are like 500, 5,000, you know. Um, and if you run around primed to believe that you're constantly in danger, that's gonna affect how you interact with people. For some cops, worst case, it's gonna make them trigger happy and decide, you know, shoot first, ask questions later when somebody moves rapidly. Even for the cops who don't get trigger happy, the vast majority, um, it will still affect, you know, who do you stop and frisk? How often do you stop and frisk people? Do you yell at them or are you nice to them? You know, that, that fear-driven behavior can be really dangerous. And when cops have a better understanding of the actual probability that they will face lethal danger, I think, I think it's actually very calming. They go, oh, I don't need to be quite so paranoid. Um, and I think that all of those things, you know, that statistical literacy, all of us need to have, um, but cops in particular, I don't think we do a very, very good job pushing them to think harder about, here are your assumptions, can you back them up? How do we know that they're right? And statistics is one tool to help us do that. Uh, another question, but just two more quickly. These will be the last two questions. Is there a scalable way to incorporate the GW Fellowship, you can talk about that a little bit, or fellowship-like programs across the country? Would credentialing associates mm -hmm. or specific policing one or two year degrees yeah. be a boon or a bane to policing? Okay, so first of all, it's not GW, it's Georgetown. Thank oh, you so much. Well, that's, um, I, look, I'm just reading it here. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, no, the, we, we actually, we already have a sister program in New Orleans that's modeled on ours. Uh, and we've been working with a number of other cities and communities to, to think about creating their own. They're actually, they're not expensive. They're easy to create. Um, I do think it is a model that can be effective elsewhere. Um, and beyond the fellowship program itself, we also have a program that brings guest speakers into the police academy to talk to all the recruits, to talk about all the, the hard issues, you know, race and policing, violence and policing, what is policing for? Um, and it's been, it's been successful so far. It's, um, and all of that is replicable elsewhere. Uh, I do think a, you know, credentialing is really important. Right now, cop can get fired by one department for, for abusive behavior. Uh, and then another department won't even know and they'll be rehired. Um, unlike, you know, if you're a lawyer and you're disbarred, it's really easy to find that out um, if you're applying for bar membership in a different state. Um, so credentialing matters, uh, having clearer national standards coupled with incentives, financial incentives from Congress matters. Um, and I would actually love to see a national service program with policing as one of the, one of the options within it.
Um, final question here uh, says, what should be in academies that isn't and what should be removed? Should we do away with the boot camp approach? I have to say, as somebody who read the book, although I think, you know, in, intuitively, I think getting rid of the boot camp approach is, a, is a probably a good idea. The book would have been far less entertaining uh, had there not been the boot camp approach. And I forget the name of the one guy that you call lawsuit. What's the, the name you use for him? Kowalski, Kowalski. or yeah, yeah. Kowalski. Not his, not his real name. Yeah. But I was, I had tears running down. I, that was very, very funny section. Um, not, you know, was, you, you, you disabuse the reader that things are actually like police academy. But, but frankly, at that moment, it, it was a little like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I do think that uh, militarized police academies um, are not helpful. I think that the, the justification that many older cops will give for the boot camp style academies is that, you know, it gives it gives recruits self-discipline, it you know, teaches them discipline, it teaches them the value of obedience to lawful authority. Um, I think that you know you can create disciplined people who who respect the law without you know punishing them for having their boots not shined enough by making them do push-ups until they collapse. Um, you know, and and in fact, I think that the downside of the boot camp style academies and DCs is relatively unmilitarized compared to many. Um, the downside is that if the lesson you give your police recruits or cadets or whatever you call them in your jurisdiction. If the lesson is that people in authority and people with power get to yell at people who don't don't have power, and people with power get to inflict physical pain on people with less power when the people with less power break the rules set by the people with power, well, guess what? Some of those people are going to go out and they're going to transfer those lessons to their interactions with people in the community, and those are not lessons that we want police officers to be to be taking away. Well, I, th I think, you know, there, there are many, many lessons that people will get in, in reading this book, and I really encourage them uh, to do so. You know, the, the, the image, uh, you know, people have, I think, comes from too many, too many police shows and, and, and too many polemic articles. And when you read the book and, and, you know, you sort of, I mean, I was struck, for example, by little things where you talk about you know, your first night out and, and in, in, you know, being assigned to different cop cars and, and, and one is assigned to the car that has the shotgun and one is assigned to the car that has the long stick for, you know, crazy dogs, uh, you know, and, and it's like, here are these people in this district going out ill-equipped, you know, that there's only one of each of these things to go around to deal with these issues. And then in the course of reading the book, you discover, um, they're grief counselors, they're dealing with health emergencies, they're enforcing the law, they're dealing with mental health issues, including flying monkeys, which I think people need to find for themselves in the book. Uh, they're dealing with, um, you know, uh, family situations, they're dealing with rape, they're dealing with murder, they're dealing with political pressure. And it's not that there are different units dealing with each of these things. Each one of these people faces all of these things every night and is ill-equipped for any of them especially well. And that that's what I took away. I may perhaps I got it wrong, but uh, you know, I I found that eye-opening and uh and and I think part of the genius of the book is 
that it's extremely humanizing and yet makes very clear the systemic issues that arise. And so I congratulate you for that. And I'm, it, it will stay with me for a long, uh, long time to come. And so for all of you who are out there, the book is Tangled Up in Blue. Um, and uh, you can find it anywhere that books are sold. Uh, or you can reach out to Rosa here at Deep State Radio, and I'm sure she will uh, personally direct you to a bookstore. And, um, uh, you know, we I, I could not encourage you more uh, 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 vigorously to go out and, and, and get it. Thank you, Rosa. Congrats. David. And uh, we'll, uh, of course, see you again next yes. week at the I usual time. Uh, yeah, do, doing, doing, doing the business of Deep State. But this is a real exceptional achievement. And uh, I hope, you know, you've gotten through the dread part of a book coming out and you are at some of the satisfaction part. Looking forward to that part. <laughs> well, thanks everybody. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, stay, stay well, everybody. Stay safe. And we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.